Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Well, hello everyone, and I hope you're all doing well. As many of you will know, they're at it again in Washington, pulling out all the financial stops with more spending on the horizon. The Senate has passed the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, and there is debate, wrangling, and talk about a much bigger spending package out of the House. Put it all together, and you have trillions of dollars in new spending proposals. As this bandwagon merrily rolls along, lawmakers are staring at the debt ceiling and what to do next. What's different this time around is the sheer size of the numbers and the inflation we are already seeing in everyday household prices in America. Washington is between a rock and a very hard place. The medicine to fix this mess may require some pain many Americans are not psyched up yet to accept. Here to explain what all this means is my guest coming up, Dr. Wayne Weingarten, Senior Fellow in Business and Economics at the Pacific Research Institute. We are in a very difficult situation. As inflation rises, interest rate costs rise, that's going to have a deleterious impact on the budget. Uh, and that then, again, it begins to snowball. So that puts us in a very different situation historically. And that's why getting spending under control now is so important. And that's what kind of brings us back to the whole debt limit. And it's a bipartisan problem, right? The When the Republicans were in power, they were spending like drunken sailors. Now the Democrats are in power and they're spending on different items, but they're spending like drunken sailors. So that was Dr. Wayne Weingarten, Senior Fellow in Business and Economics at the Pacific Research Institute. And in a wee moment, you'll be hearing more from him in my interview coming up. You're listening to the show once known as Life on Planet Earth and now called Dig Life Deep. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Wayne Weingarten, Senior Fellow in Business and Economics at the Pacific Research Institute, here to talk about all the latest spending bills and proposals in Washington, and our notoriously amazing debt ceiling. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Dr. Weingarten, welcome to my show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, we have a lot going on, and there's a lot happening in Washington right now as we talk. And of course, it seems like the same old, same old tax and spending and more government deficits, bigger government deficits. But we have two sort of key things going on at the moment, and I want you to walk us through it and explain it to our listeners 
why this is of consequence. We had the bill that came out of the Senate, the, the spending bill, and then we have another bigger bill on infrastructure spending, which um, in the region of 3.5 trillion, you put them all together in, and went to multiple trillions, 4.5. Well, everybody's losing a handle on all the numbers. They're so large and many people's eyes are just glazing over. Parallel to that, we have the debt ceiling talks, the possibility or even the mere possibility of a default. And, you know, what are the consequences? Let's start at the beginning. What's going on in Washington on tax and spending? These are crazy times. Give us some numbers. You know, these are these are crazy times. And I think it's important before we start talking about the one trillion dollars in the bipartisan spending bill or the three and a half trillion dollars in the it's really they're trying to call it infrastructure, but it's really a social spending bill. We have to go back to the pandemic. So before the pandemic, the federal government spent about $4.4 trillion. That was about 21% of GDP, an incredible sum. Now, mind you, the debt problem, which kind of leads us to that second track, is that over time, the government collects about 18 or 17% of GDP. So for anyone doing the math, 18 or 17% is less than 21 or 20%. And that's why we've had deficits in the debt uh, the accumulation, all those past deficits continue to grow. We then, over about 18 months, spent $5 trillion. So I think it's important first to just to put in perspective how much we just spent on the pandemic. Incredible sum of money, so that now our spending in the past two years has been about 32% of GDP. Wow, that's um, a huge number. That's gone up from what? Low teens in recent years? Well, you no, know, we've been around 20%, 18, high teens, you know, 20%. It used to be, obviously, many years ago, much lower than that. And revenues had never caught up, right? But now we're going to throw in that $1 trillion in infrastructure and the $3.5 trillion in which really social spending, you know, uh, uh, free community college, expanded Medicare, uh, Medicaid, expanded Medicare, uh, free community college. These are social programs. And we're not talking about the merits of them, right? We're just talking about you know, what we can spend. Now, the debt limit comes in because there's another quirk to spending, which is there is uh, a statutory limit of how much debt the federal government can accumulate. And every once in a while, we hit that limit. We don't need to have one, but it's just you know, it's the way it works. Um, and so when it gets close to that limit, because we run deficits every year, Congress has to vote to raise it. Sometimes, most times, it's a uh, just you know, a formality. But sometimes, um, in response to all of these spending um, problems, issues arise. And so there's been just this confluence of events where, with all that spending, we're rushing. You know, we're, we're kind of coming up on that debt limit. At the same time, that uh, the the four and a half trillion dollars, and mind you, that four and a half trillion is an underestimate of what those programs really will spend, because we're talking about a radical change in the relationship between people and the government. So it's really more than that. So the the debt limits creating this opportunity to, in effect, rethink, you know, <laughs> and and have uh, more of a, I guess, spending control than we would otherwise, because. If you pass the three and a half trillion dollars, but you don't increase the debt limit, you can't issue new debt. And so you can't cover that spending. And so that's kind of the, the confluence of these two events coming at once. How do you think this is going to end? I mean, there's a lot of political jockeying going on in Washington. You know, the Republicans playing off the Democrats. But I mean, both of them have been there before and are maybe 
equally guilty of the same issue of just keep raising the debt ceiling without any regard for finding cost savings, which might be better overall for the U.S. economy in the long term. You know, if you go by what has happened in the past, right, when we've had these fights, inevitably you may get some spending concessions on the margins at best, and then the debt limits raised after a fuss, because there there are consequences, right? When we can't meet, uh, we can't pay our bills, there are consequences. When you're borrowing 30 cents of every dollar you're spending or more, um, you can't borrow. That means you can't pay 30% of your bills or whatever that might be. Uh, and that's, um, you know, that, that that obviously has consequences. I mean, this is very serious um, issues, but there's a even more serious issue because the amount we're spending, nobody actually ever asks the question, what's an affordable amount of spending in D.C.? That was something that we've researched in the past, and we've def- we, we defined affordability at, at Pacific Research Institute by basically what's the amount of spending that maximizes growth. You can have another definition of what you think is affordable. That was our definition. And what we came up with is the, uh, the amount of spending, government spending at the federal level, should be about 15% of GDP. That's something that is affordable because that's the amount where uh, if you're spending it well, you're in effect maximizing the value of the public sector and allowing the private sector to, to, to flourish. Uh, and that gives you stronger growth. Anything above that compromises growth. We've been through a very difficult period. We've been through the COVID economy and the mm-hmm. very unusual and unprecedented responses to that from Washington. They've printed money. The Fed has done that to stall off a major recession or a very serious depression. I mean, what were the answers to that? They, they, they were forced, essentially, to print money to save and rescue the economy. And and European economies did the same. If they had stood pat, one can only imagine where we would be at now. One would wonder where we would be with respect to how much spending we could have done, but also in terms of the inflation we're looking at. Right Today, um, the August uh, producer price index measure of inflation came out. Year over year, it was at 8%. We've been running at an insanely large uh, amount of inflation for many months. The Fed continues to call it transitory. Um, it, it was actually, I'm sorry, in excess of 8%. Uh, it, it continued to call it transitory. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> what is transitory? Uh, you know, th- this is having real consequences. People's, you know, wages are going up, but they're not keeping up with inflation. So we're actually seeing, because the Fed helped monetize the debt, right? And they, they, they said this is all about stimulus. But what we're actually doing is we're undermining price stability. We're undermining kind of people's purchasing power. We're creating uh, capital market misallocations and distortions. All of this hurts our long run kind of growth potential. When you throw in spending at 30% of GDP, we're creating an environment where as opposed to kind of going at, we used to go at 3%. Now people are saying we're two and a half uh, real growth. We may now soon be under 2%. If we continue along this kind of policy path, and that's the real consequence, is that long term, we're going to just see our ability to kind of increase our prosperity is going to diminish. Not only that, we have a lot of long term structural issues, our public pensions at the state and local level, Social Security and Medicare at the federal level. Um, We're not going to have the enough kind of wealth in the economy to to manage those problems. And so we're going to continue to move from crisis to crisis because we have bad policies 
that are leading to slow growth, which is making it harder to deal with the consequences of those bad policies. Consumers see it at the supermarkets and at mm-hmm. the gas pumps. And when they want to buy something at the mall or even when they're trying to buy a house, we've seen how housing prices have climbed. I'm not even sure if we're getting accurate numbers from the Fed. Any ideas how fast the prices could keep rising? Do you sense that they could be double digits within the next few months? You know, I think predicting that precisely is difficult, but I would say that that's certainly within the realm of possibility and the kind of the risk kind of of what we could possibly face is expanding. That uncertainty is expanding. Uh, And so absolutely, we've been consistently kind of when you look at expectations for inflation, inflation consistently kind of is, is, is above that. Right, so it consistently runs hotter, uh, and the you know the growth in the money supply is still out there. So it, yeah. it's absolutely a risk. Now there has been some slower growth in 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 the money supply by the Fed, and that's somewhat positive, and so maybe that will mute it more longer term. But one of the difficulties of monetary policy is that it operates with kind of a lag, and it's uncertain and unpredictable what that lag is. We've been through these inflation periods through history. And the the response in the past was to raise interest rates. But if the Fed raises interest rates in today's environment, that sets off another set of problems that could be unimaginable by historical standards. If you just go back to the $5 trillion I talked about that we uh, spent uh, to deal with the pandemic, that increased the debt by about $4 trillion, something along those lines. That's what we built up, let's say, over that time period. To, to cover that debt at the current interest rates is about, I think, $100, $200 billion a year, which is substantial, but it's manageable. If you allow that to go back, you know, interest rates to rise, you could double, triple, quadruple that number. That is an, in, you know, an unstable amount of costs just to deal with the kind of financing of the debt. We're not paying down the debt, mind you. We're just paying the interest costs that have been accumulated. So we are in a very difficult situation. As inflation rises, interest rate costs rise, that's going to have a deleterious impact on the budget. Uh, And that then, again, it begins to snowball. So that puts us in a very different situation historically. And that's why getting spending under control now is so important. And that's kind of brings us back to the whole debt limit. Because with that debt limit, uh, it, it, um, it's leverage for spending control. And we need to rethink, certainly, uh, whether or not we can afford another $4.5 trillion, not in one year, obviously, over, over, over many years, but whether we can afford that type of increase in government spending. And it's, it's just not clear that we can. We've been raising the debt limit with reckless abandon over the past decade or so. How long can that continue without it being a real problem? Can you just continue raising the debt limit with no consequences? Well, it's not the debt limit that matters. I mean, in some ways, you could say the debt limit is a, um, you know, you make the, the decisions about the debt when you make the budget decisions. So you can say the debt limit is kind of duplicitous to, to, to those considerations. The, the, the issue is the spending, Right. The issue is, can we continue to spend at the rate that we're spending? Well, exactly. Well, I, I guess the, the limit gives you gives free reign to the big spenders, you know, to say, well, we've raised the limit. Now we're going to come in and spend heavy. I suppose that's the relationship I was referring to. 
Exactly. And, and, and then that I think is where the gentleman is important. And that's where we, we, it, it forces us to rethink our spending, um, which is what we have to do. So, uh, the, the, and, and part of the answer is, and this is something, you know, we, we had discussed in, in, in some of our research where we, we need to create a, a hard budget cap in terms of not even cutting spending is, 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 um, uh, just reducing the growth. If we can reduce the growth, hold the growth has been into below the growth of the economy and give the economy a chance to, to catch back up. I mean, that is, it, it's actually not a, you know, in, in inflation adjusted terms, you could probably still increase the, the amount of spending, but it would just slowly give the private sector the ability to gain more kind of prosperity to be able to afford the amount of spending that the government's doing. Uh, you know, so that that's those are the types of reforms that are necessary. The problem is, is that that's radical compared to what anything, you know, we're talking about growing spending at double digit rates, you know, well above the rate of growth of the economy. So we're going in the wrong direction. But, you, you know, when you're asking about the debt limit, you know, perhaps that's a, a, a means to try to at least rein that growth in. Realistically, we're not going to see much change. There's a huge appetite for spending. The American public have bought into it. Well, we're still in the COVID economy. Washington has been very generous. And when we say all that, some rescue was needed during the depths of the COVID recession. Let's let's be honest about it. Absolutely. Look, the um, there was a amount of spending that was definitely needed. You needed to support the people who lost their jobs because of the the shutdowns. You needed when you force a business to close, you have a responsibility. You've taken. Uh, something from that business, you have a responsibility to cover that. But the amount that we spend, when you send checks out to everyone based on income, not based on whether or not they were impacted by the pandemic, that is a tremendous, you know, that was where a lot of money was spent, right? Where uh, we were just sending out $2,000 to their families based on uh, nothing else but the income they earned, not whether or not they were adversely impacted by the pandemic. That's a cost uh, uh, that led to kind of an increase in the debt, but it did nothing to kind of help the people who were harmed by the pandemic. And it's that type of thinking and that type of spending that's gotten us into the problem that we have now, where we're really in a very, very difficult situation. Yeah, I'm just looking at some numbers. You know, you just think about it, the mind boggles and some people's eyes glaze over, but national debt, 30 trillion or in or around, we're cruising towards that. It'll probably by next year, I'm sure it'll be 32, 33, who knows? That's bigger than the size of our economy. And then you have the federal budget gone from 4.4 trillion a few years ago to 6. something trillion. We have a deficit of what, nearly 2 trillion. The numbers are astonishing. Yeah, they are. And it's a bipartisan problem, right? The When the Republicans were in power, they were spending like drunken sailors. Now the Democrats are in power and they're spending on different items, but they're spending like drunken sailors. So uh, it, it, actually, they're spending, everyone's spending at levels that would make a drunken sailor blush. I mean, the, the amount of money that both you know political parties are spending has been fiscally irresponsible. We've been fiscally irresponsible for decades. And, and, and the, very soon, uh, you we're going to start, we've been feeling the consequences in terms of slower growth, mind you, but we're going to really start feeling the consequences not so far down the road because all of these costs, they're, they're creating a tax burden. And they're also transferring resources from more valued uses to less valued uses. And that has a cost too. I'm sure there are people listening and saying, Dr. Weingarten is too pessimistic. Come on. We are the biggest and the greatest nation in the world. We have the reserve currency. Um, we are the most productive 
There's none. We can print money, and it's fine. People will take our dollars all over the world. So why why all this doom and gloom? Well, I'm an optimistic person, and I think we can get things, you know, in in order. I'm very optimistic uh, about that in terms of our our ability to uh, to write the course. But you know, we are the reserve currency until we're not. You know, it's, it's those types. Now, part of the problem in, in in those issues is, of course, it's a horse race. So, you know, where are you going to go if you're not going to go into the U.S. dollar? And that's part of the reason why some of those consequences haven't been felt is because, you know, Europe has you know, a lot of debt as well and a, a slow growing economy. Right. So, you know, Japan, a, a lot of the same issues. So, you know, where where are you going to go if you're not going to use the dollar? You know, that is kind of part of uh, why the dollar is, is, is maintained itself. But mind you, that 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 doesn't last forever. Right. And you can see that it is it's the same people that saying that we can print money, you know, monetize the debt and not have inflation. You know, well, whoops, <laughs> we seem to have inflation now. Adopt U.S. Kids presents what to expect when you're expecting a teenager learning the lingo. Jelly. Jelly adjective. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Wayne Weingarten, Senior Fellow in Business and Economics at the Pacific Research Institute, talking about all the latest spending bills and proposals in Washington and our debt ceiling. Here, he reacts to what is known as modern monetary theory. It's a fancy term, and in effect, it's a term for spending like a drunken sailor with the idea that the government can somehow take care of the big hangover. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. The economic term for it is modern monetary theory. We've we've heard that a lot, and that's pretty popular with a lot of lawmakers in Washington this modern monetary theory untested it does that end in disaster by your thinking yes uh you know, it's it, it's in my, in my thinking it's simply and i am oversimplifying it here uh, and not doing it justice but uh to talk about it glibly it is just basically excuses to monetize the debt you know to give politicians an excuse to say hey look you can spend lots of money and all that's you know don't worry about the deficits you know don't worry about you know these things we can spend with reckless abandon the government the, the fed will print money to cover it and everything will be great uh you know that that's the type of thinking that leads to hyperinflation in germany uh argentina i mean we, we've seen these examples before and just because with the u.s doesn't mean that we're immune to it it does mean, obviously, that we have uh, a greater ability to do this, but uh, there, there are limits. And the, you know, if we really follow monetary, modern monetary theory to its, its logical conclusions, we're going to have a slower growth economy. We're going to have tons of debt, higher inflation. The, we will lose, maybe not full reserve status, but a lot of uh, international transactions would just happen outside the dollar because it won't be a, um, a, a reliable store of value. What nations might fill that void? Could it be the euro? Could it be China? Or would it be a collection of countries that could set up some kind of a a quasi-reserve currency and really 
hammer it to the U.S.? You know, I'm not, I've thought about that. I'm not sure what the answer is. I, I, I don't think it's China because there's a lot of concerns about um, kind of their regulations and kind of what's happening there. Uh, the EU has some uh, benefits to it. Japan has some benefits to it. Uh, some type of in, international, that, that could have some benefit. But what you can also have, and you've already seen this, whereas depending upon where you're transacting, perhaps, you know, m- more, you know, it, it, it'll be evolutionary, not revolutionary. So you, you'll start to see more transactions in the Asian region leveraging the yen and more uh, in the Euro- Europe, Middle East, Africa, they'll rely more on the uh uh, on the euro, maybe South America will be less dollars and more euro, especially as the U.S. continues to uh, discourage international trade, right, uh, and put on more tariffs. That that only encourages, you know, more. You know, if you're transacting more with Europe, then the uh, transacting in the euro makes more sense than transacting in the dollar, especially if the dollar is an unreliable store value. So if you don't know where the dollar will be relative to the euro in a few months and you're transacting between the Middle East and, and Europe, why would you, you know, do that transaction in dollars? It, it would make more sense to do it in euro. Dr. Weingart, you mentioned something there about international trade, the sort of trend, if you will, against that, at least under the Trump administration. So you're a free trader. Does that mean that you are skeptical of the America? first type of policy. Let's bring jobs home here. Let's manufacture here and let's curb our trading with China and let workers in America pick up that slack and create wealth here in America directly. International trade generates more jobs and more wealth. Um, You know, the Trump policies on international trade were a disaster, right? Torpedoing the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a complete disaster that could have not only had important geopolitical benefits, but it would have had tremendous economic benefits. When we talk about prices being under control, trading with China, right, and those imports were a big part of it. Now, China has um, done some things recently which are of great concern, uh, but that's a different issue and needs to be handled differently. It's not something that you slap on tariffs about. It's not, you know, this this idea of America first, the, the, the whole positioning of it is, uh, is is based on kind of faulty economic logic, right? The idea that if we trade, because it creates a zero-sum game right, in trade, and trade is, is a positive-sum game. When we trade with the Japanese, with the Taiwanese, with Australia, with Europe, we're, both sides are gaining from that in the same way that when people from Maryland trade with people from Delaware, right, that they're, they're, they're gaining from it. Does Maryland have a trade deficit with Delaware? I, I don't know and I don't care. Mm. But aren't some aspects of it raise certain alarm bells? Isn't it a disaster when manufacturing jobs are outsourced from the Midwest to some low cost center in China and thousands of jobs get wiped out in the Midwest? Maybe the US economy somehow benefits, but there's no benefits to those working families in the Midwest. I, I, I think that's where a lot of folks who are on the other side of this debate, that's how they view it. And, and, and what they're missing, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that in terms of output, right, we produce more manufacturing output today than we ever have, right? So our manufacturing sector has grown and continues to grow. Now, labor-intensive jobs 
are uh, do, do move to places where labor is cheaper. That's where their comparative advantage are. Uh, advantages are our comparative advantages are in high tech manufacturing uh, services, things of that nature. Uh, and now we're talking about education. We're talking about other types of policies so that people can take advantage of the economy as kind of as it's uh, developing. Uh, and that, those are very important issues, but that is a different issue. It's in a, di- a different problem than how do we generate kind of benefits uh, from international trade, right? So that I- if we had the right education, and it's not too late, obviously, we need to implement the policies so that people can move to the jobs of the 21st century. And that's kind of what we're always talking about, but that's that should be the focus, right? It shouldn't be, you know, how do we hold ourselves back? You know, the uh, you know, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, right? The whole idea of creative destruction, and that's the 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 process of 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 development is that you know we don't have blacksmiths anymore, we don't have horse and buggy makers and buggy whip makers because things continue to progress. We're all better off because of it, right? If you look at the 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 um, what used to be an agricultural economy, right, and we destroyed a lot of farm jobs, right? A lot of agricultural workers went to the cities, you know, worked in factories and, you know, things progressed. So that's just the, the kind of that kind of progress that's occurred throughout time. And we need to we need to uh, encourage that. And we also need to make sure that people are trained so that they can take up the jobs uh, that are available in the 21st century. I mean, all of that is interesting and has some merit and uh, people on both sides will agree with a lot of that rationale. But if you look at what has happened in the U.S. economy with with job growth and job creation, there's been a a lot of low-paid jobs created in the retail sector and the in-service sector. But a lot of those middle-class paying jobs, they're all gone. A lot of them have been outsourced and not replaced by by anything close in terms of um, salaries and compensation. The, you know, that has a lot to do with kind of the, the policies that we've implemented, though, and that's what I guess I was trying to say earlier, that those types of jobs we can, we, we have been creating, by the way, right? Median income adjusting for inflation has, you know, there was, there was patterns to it, but, you know, we have now, uh, back to, I think, before the pandemic, reached new highs with that showing that the average family is doing better and better, that there are middle-class jobs. To the extent, when you look at the data, to the extent that the middle-class is hollowing out, it's because yeah. people are moving more to the upper-income brackets, not necessarily to the lower-income brackets. So we need to continue to do more of kind of that that innovation because that's how we uh, increase the income of, of families across the country. And it is that training uh, to take up that, the, like we're saying, the 21st century jobs, that's how we'll, we'll, we'll create wealth for families, not by having them do lower skill jobs that are just lower valued. So I, I would agree with, with, with that part of it. But the way we do that is through embracing trade, through kind of increasing prosperity and better education systems so that people are prepared, uh, you know, for the job that, 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 um, really are kind of where the high, that the high skills are, the high productivity is. So you get the higher wages. What you're telling us and what we're reading, you know, overall, we've incredible wealth, but it's, you know, the spending and all of that, which we've talked about earlier and we can get back to. But there's this widening income inequality gap. And I don't want to sound like a socialist here, but it's just a reality. I mean, the income's at the very top and at the bottom and there's and the hollowing out of the middle class, as you said, we've got to do a better job to create more middle class jobs. 
Remember again, I, I was saying when I was saying hollowing out of the middle class, but more of that, that the middle has hollowed out because more people have moved up, not because people have moved down. So okay. that's a very different phenomena. But when you're talking about then, you know, the, when we're looking at the kind of comparisons of income, one mistake that people constantly make, and there's, 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 it's important to look at these, right? But you can't compare wealth to income, right? So when you're talking about, oh, what's happened to Jeff Be- Bezos' wealth, right? That's a different question than what you're saying is what's happened to the income of uh, different levels. Now, you can compare wealth to wealth, or you can compare income to income. But what, what we're constantly doing is, oh, look, Jeff Bezos' stock portfolio has increased you yeah. know, by $5 billion. That's very different than the income growth. Because you know what they don't report on, by the way, is you know, if the uh, stock market is frothy, right? And if you look at interest rates, you know, there's there you, you see people, right? There are very good arguments to say that it's there's bubbles, then Jeff Bezos' income will go down by $10 billion. People yeah. won't report that, right? They only like to report when his income goes up by $10 billion. But, the, you know, when you're looking at that type of wealth, it's just a different comparison. And, and so it's just a, a not a helpful in terms yeah. of what people are trying to get at. That's why if you look at uh, what is the income of people in the kind of the bottom uh, quintiles. How has that grown? What's the in- median income? How has that grown? And what you see is, and in, in, it connects to policy to a large extent, but we, we went through a period where they were, uh, you know, they went up and they kind of went down a bit. Then they, uh, you know, we finally got them higher around 2018, 2019, where all of those income groups were actually earning adjusted for inflation more money than previously. So there were Difficult you know, periods, and I would say those are connected to bad policy. But when policies got better, we, we've seen that improvement. So I think that's why it's so important to you know, go back to government spending and the debt and those subject consequences, uh, international trade, why we get those, um, you know, those policies uh, correct, because that's what helps generate uh, income growth uh, across all of the quintiles. Yeah, so you're talking about comparing apples to apples, oranges to oranges take-home pay with take-home pay, um, a soaring stock market portfolio that Bezos may have, has, with somebody on Wall Street who has takes home a lot of their income in stock. So you, you're kind of saying that the uh, American worker is not doing so bad after all. Well, you know, again, <laughs> it's been, you know, right now sitting here in 2021, it's been a rough stretch. Yeah. So I, I'm not going to say that right now people aren't doing well. Um, and, and again, uh, we've had uh, the lower income groups take um, the pandemic much harder than the upper income. If you're in the service economy, you know, your income may not have been impacted. Whereas, you, you know, if you're, um, I'm sorry, I should be careful when I say service, like if you're in the business services, yeah. uh, you know, consulting, things of that nature, you, you were fine. If you were in the restaurant, which is the service industry, <clears throat> uh, you, you had you know, a tough you're time. Have a, yeah, a tough time. Uh, and those tend to be lower paying jobs. So we definitely, through the pandemic, you know, it's to be able to, I wouldn't stare, sit here and say, you know, through the pandemic, you know, uh, you know, nobody's suffering because that's just not not correct. With inflation, it's tough as well, because the, whatever wage gains that are out there, they're being totally, um, uh, they're inadequate relative to the inflation. So people are now falling behind get policy induced, but because of the inflationary environment, people are falling behind. 
Let's just go back to the debt ceiling and our rampant runaway debt out of Washington. And you have stressed the need for you know, the private sector uh, to be able to pick up the slack, as it were. Is it possible to curb spending and fund essential programs at the same time? Absolutely. Um, when you look at the waste, um, when you look at the different programs, it's, 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 it's part of it is focusing on what the government should do. We never, you know, corporate America, they constantly have these kind of uh, meetings where they look, what is our competitive advantage? What should we be doing? What shouldn't we be doing? What do they, you know, they'll, they'll sell off companies that aren't part of their core competency anymore. Uh, and we don't do that at the government. That's, that's one of the big differences between the public sector and the private sector is that there's no feedback mechanism in terms of what you know should they be doing and what shouldn't they be doing. I guess there's two ways to think about it, right? What do they do well, right? And then what are they kind of um, what is their kind of their role? Because you know if, if you don't have both of those features to it, that you know you can do it well and it's kind of what you should be doing. Then, then that's excessive spending. And if you go through the departments and you look at the different programs that we're doing, looking at the fact that we're still funding ethanol programs, right? We're still giving ethanol breaks, but the the um, the product is no good, right? It does not help reduce overall greenhouse gas emissions, you know. And, and, and that's just a small little thing. We think about, you know, the and and this is something that's tired, but it's just coming to my head. Cylindra, right? Where we fund, you know. It's small change to the federal budget, but you fund billions of dollars to a you know solar company that goes bankrupt. I mean, and 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 the budget's just rife with those things. Yeah. So and there's there's plenty of places to cut. So can the private sector spending accomplish what government spending can't? That's by definition. Yeah. Right. If you have a public sector that's playing its role, then private sector plays its role. They're both achieving very different things. Yeah. So I, th- you know, by definition, um, now to take on um, welfare, where, which we spend an incredible amount of money, right, and do a very poor job of helping people up the income ladder. There's ways to restructure that, right? I, I, I'm in favor of uh, a much simpler uh, Milton Freeman's kind of negative income tax, where we're just basically giving people cash, um, as opposed to this, you know. It's like $890 billion worth of programs that people don't value that isn't helping people get ahead. That That's an incredible, it's an important job. It's a clear role for the government, but it's a job we're not doing well. So we could restructure that, save money at the same time that serve people better. So let's go back to the debt ceiling to understand the mechanics of this. If the debt ceiling isn't raised, most people expect that it'll there'll be all this politics and we've been through that before. Let's... Let's say they didn't. There are holdouts or somebody playing political hardball. What happens then? Government defaults. Uh, Social Security recipients don't get their checks. Civil servants don't pick up their checks. A lot of programs. Is that what happens? What, what, if you look at the history of what, what's happened when we've kind of crashed into it is the uh, party in power that wants the debt ceiling to be raised is going to make the cuts as painful as possible. And so I would imagine that will be the game that they play as well. So you, you hold off Social Security checks and you get 30 million Americans screaming and, you know, we need to, you know, and it, it, it'll eventually get resolved. I mean, that seems to be what has happened in the past. Um, and so but that, that, that seems like a, a, a logical kind of consequence of what's, what's going to happen if we crash into the wall. If worst case scenario, the U.S. defaults, what, what does the default look like? I mean, just all hell breaks loose and there's economic calamity 
Uh, we can't do trade with any of the world. Nobody expects that, but who knows? I mean, we've reached a sort of, it seems like we're reaching a tipping point, right? It does. It does. You know, I, I my, my guess would be that people would recognize that this is a temporary um, issue. Um, and there are trans, you know, there are costs that 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 that'll impose, but that is all hell won't break loose because people recognize that they will get paid. I don't think people long term would 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 fear that, but th- that is a risk, right? So there is that risk out there that uh, something calamitous would happen. Um, the problem is is that something calamitous will happen if we don't get spending under control too. So you know, we really put ourselves in a very difficult position where. You know, is it worth creating a little bit of disruption now yep. in order to avoid a bigger disruption later? You know, I, I don't I don't feel confident in the answer to that, but it is certainly an interesting question and important. I should say an important question to ask. But spending is accelerating. If you look at the pace of spending now and, and people are getting used to it and and are demanding more almost from their lawmakers. So that's the prospects then don't look all that good if we go down that road without taking a breath and looking at what the reality is here. All right. And in theory, the debt limit could be a chance for us to take a breath. Unfortunately, it's just a chance for everyone to get into their bunkers and uh, throw, you know, th- uh, throw things at each other. Uh, and that's, <laughs> you know, so, but... <sighs> To be optimistic, because I want to be optimistic. I mean, to some extent, right, that it is human nature that before we reform, we really need to get close to rock bottom or really hit something hard before we reform. And maybe that's kind of what we're going through. And so that, you know, we'll, we'll hit something hard, but then we'll come back and we'll come back stronger because we'll fix our errant ways. Dr. Weingarten, thank you for being on my show. And we'll stay and watch what's happening in Washington debt ceiling and all those bills that are coming out and all the big spending. Thank you so much. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.